the best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all-new Talk Radio Freedom 106.5. Well, as I said to you, we do have a, a special interview at this point in time. It's a gentleman I've been trying to get on the program for, for quite some time to speak to us about some of the very important things related to agriculture and how we're dealing with it. And and there's uh, a feature uh, that, that's, that's going to start from this Saturday. It's described as the Brinsley Samaru Distinguished Lecture Series. It's being held at the Heritage Center under the patronage of the NCIC. And it's a memorial lecture series in honor of Dr. Brinsley Samaru, one of the great minds that uh, passed away and left us with so much in his legacy. Now, joining us here this morning, a uh, gentleman who will be speaking to us about the topic that they're going to be discussing at this, um, this edition of the Distinguished Lecture Series, the Brinsley Samaru Distinguished Lecture Series. It's taking place on Saturday, 2nd March at the Bistram Gopi Auditorium NCIC Nagar in Shagonas. It starts at 6 p.m. Let's welcome to our program the presenter of this um, edition of the series, uh, Dr. Omarat Maharaj. Good morning to you. Good morning, Satish. Good morning to your listeners at home and abroad. Um, I know this topic, uh, when we speak about food and agriculture, tends to get, um, you know, very passionate. It mm -hmm. tends to solicit a lot of public opinion, mm -hmm. uh, which is good on my side because hopefully it is a catalyst to get people to act. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in reflection on the team, the, the preamble that you gave, the National Council for Indian Culture is dedicating, or I should say rededicating, um, their lecture series into the Brinsley Samaru Distinguished Lecture Series. And, of course, honoring the contributions he would have made over the years. And, you know, just in a little snapshot to make the relevance as to the conversation we're about to have, to say that, you know, basically for perhaps 50 years and more, uh, Prof. Samaru would have given up service to this country in various roles. You mm -hmm. know, a lot of people know him as a historian, a university lecturer. And in the politics, he was an opposition senator and MP. And in the 1980s, he was a government minister then. I think that was 89 to 91 as Minister of Food Production and Marine Exploitation. Yeah. So in that vein of thought, and of course, the, you know, the creators or the motivation behind the series was, of course, to start uh, as it's very important to focus on food and agriculture for people. Yeah, Dr. Brinsley Samaru was such an inspiration. Um, and he was such a guiding light, a wealth of information contained within his mind. He lived and experienced many of the things that he spoke about. And as a historian as well, he was he was clinical in, in addressing some of the things back then that continue to uh, deal with us today and affect us today. Uh, his his death is a great loss, That's that's for sure. Um, but his work will live on and his legacy will continue and this series is, is, is definitely a step in the right direction. The, the topic is, is an interesting one. Food security and citizens' responsibility. When we speak of food security, I don't know how much emphasis we place, if we place any at all, on this angle of citizens being responsible for their own food security and what can be done. Mm -hmm. It's an important discussion because the prices of commodities continue to go up. The, the ability of people to afford their food is going down because while everything else is going up, the salaries are not going up um, 
in, on par with the, the increases that people are seeing in their, in their living expenses. So tell us, uh, while not wanting to take away too much from what you're going to present on Saturday, explain to me and to our listeners what is my responsibility as a citizen when it comes to food security? That's a very powerful segue into the topic, Satish. The, you know, you made the point there about food prices outstripping the household or perhaps personal income. The rate of increase in that price level outstripping the rate increase of increase in your income. And by extension, you tend to feel insecure, you tend to feel uncomfortable. And perhaps, you know, for the layman, that is where the term food security rings a bell. And, you know, in a wider context, but the state of play in this country and other spaces, when we use the term food security, we tend to throw it around as a buzzword. It's one of those buzzwords like climate change, food, you know, food security is there, and all, all the other things that tend to get people emotional or provoke responses. But we would also want to use the opportunity that you are affording this morning to not only, um, you know, provoke, but of course, to educate all with a listening ear in terms of focusing the national conversation at this time. When we speak about food security, we are really looking at a state, if you can imagine, where all people at all times, meaning an inclusive state, would have, you know, physical, social, economic access to sufficient food, of course, to be safe and nutrition, um, safe and nutritious. And of course, when we use the word nutritious in that conversation, it is to meet their dietary needs and so on to live an active, healthy, and prosperous life. So we spoke about some keywords, which is, of course, availability, access, and affordability. These are, you know, perhaps the three dimensions that are more topical when we discuss the issue um, clinically, as you say, in terms of food security. But now, in the circumstances that we live, we also speak a lot about food import or food import dependence. And therefore, our food security is impacted through production and trade in our Trinidad-Tobago climate or within the CARICOM space. And therefore, it means that in, a, in addition to availability, access, and affordability, we're also looking at the economics, the geography, cultural acceptability, and all the other social impacts that go towards feeding people in terms of combating hunger and malnutrition. So that discussion about food security is very broad in the literature, and we could go at length of it. But there are means that there are different groups of or institutions, meaning entities, that carry responsibility. All right, and we tend, in the court of public opinion, to I, well, from my observation, mix or blur whose responsibility things can be at times. And clearly, it means that food security is a multi-dimensional issue. And because it is multidimensional, it means that there are many partners, not any working against each other or being perceived as, you know, based on your topics earlier this morning. It is not to cause conflict or confusion among partners, but of course there are roles. And together we can achieve food security. It is not a sort of one-man show responsibility. So mm. focusing on the topic, the main stakeholders is, of course, public policy carried by government. They are the farmers or the food producers, including the fisher folk and marine industry. We have consumers, which is who I'd like to speak to for the few minutes we have this morning, and you already opened the door to that. Then you have the wider food manufacturing industry. You have NGO and civil society efforts, such as the Breadfruit Trees Initiative, led by Raul Bermudez, which you must have heard about at some time, and others, of course, in the space. 
green army and so on. You have international organizations that dovetail into supporting government development programs and financing, such as the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, the World Food Program, WHO, other multilaterals and so on. You have research institutions and academia. You have like the University of the West Indies and other academic experts. You have private sector businesses having a role in agriculture. We know about retail distribution, how we as consumers access food, whether it is at the supermarket, the, the wet markets or the municipal markets, supporting vendors along the roadside and so on. You have financial institutions playing a role in the sector. And of course, people like yourself, which is media and public opinion. And there could be probably more if we think about it more lucidly. So just to give the context that in all of those rules and responsibilities, in the little time we have, we just want to touch on, you know, citizens or consumers' responsibility, which would be the focus for a few minutes. Yeah, we, we, we've had numerous discussions on the program. We actually have an agriculture feature that runs on the station. Um, more than one, actually, speaking about food, food production, farmers. In in my experience, because I speak to a lot of people, some of these farmers, groups and all that kind of thing, and other stakeholders, everybody you talk to seems to know what needs to be done. Everybody seems to know exactly what needs to be done, but for some strange reason, we can't get it done. What, Agreed. What do you think is the reason why everybody have the answers, but nobody could, in, uh, could turn them into actual solutions? Well, perhaps in the school curricula, we need to go back there and teach something called implementation. <laughs> we, have a lot of, we have a lot of conceptual frameworks of philosophers around us. I mean, I have a doctrine philosophy, so I probably stand guilty. Right. But from my lens, I want to say to you and your listeners this morning that, you know, a vibrant or an inclusive food production sector in this country is the largest social safety net that could be made available to the population. All right. So if we take it from that lens... It means that if we had a successful sector, it would provide the means for the most vulnerable among us, at least to meet that human or that basic right of access to safe and nutritious food as we open the discussion with. Mm -hmm. And of course, to the wider consuming public, it will mean that in the economic circumstances, people therefore need to know where their food comes from, how it is produced, and of course, to respect the circumstances of the men, women, boys and girls who work to feed us. So, how does that make sense? It makes sense that, yes, it make the, 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 uh, the insertion that, you know, we have so many solutions but zero implementation or lack thereof. But I'm saying to you, for the sake of the little time we have, mm. that I can't address implementation right, right now. Mm -hmm. But it's only to suggest, of course, that from the consumer lens, before this, you know, broaden the topic all over, just to focus that, these are the main things that I think consumers or citizens are concerned about right now, having looked at the, you know, the national conversation. And we could go at them in detail, but I'm just laying it there. And of course, in subsequent times, and I apologize to you again that we didn't meet across paths sooner mm -hmm. for different reasons. But the fact remains, if we just take, you know, one example, as you're saying, you open up by um, talking about the cost of food or food prices or feeding your family. And that's a nice way, when I speak to schools, I have the opportunity to speak, you know, in that sort of environment. And, you know, they, they are so sharp with their mathematics. And you could put them to the test because we have doubles. The price of doubles now is 6 $7 around there, right? And you have, you know, the most expensive restaurant meals. They might go to Spain and people pay $300 for a plate of something. 
Agreed? Mm -hmm. So, in that span, you know, my mathematics is not the best. So, let's just say our average meal would cost you $20 in this country to eat something basic, right? Sada, roti, and fryer, whatever. And $20 by 1.4 million people, and we all hope to eat three meals per day. Agreed? So, the mathematics would tell us that per day in this country, at a minimum, because remember using $20, right? You can't get lunch no way for $20. The, at a minimum, $84 million in meals on average is served per day in this country. All right? For the year, that takes us over $30 billion is circulating in this food and beverage industry in terms of business and turnover. Now, the big question is, how is that driving agricultural economics? Not only in terms of manufacturing, retail, and foreign trade. And, you know, the buzz thing on social media right now is the social, the, the sales volume mm. for chicken and chips in 2023. Right. Right? So that alone, you know, that, that unit alone was, I think, over a billion dollars or something like that. So if the food and beverage industry, from my, you know, mediocre example here, is looking at this turnover in transactions or this transactional value of over 30 billion it gives us the idea that we are as a population taught over the years or led to believe for various reasons that agriculture is at a minimum all right i have i do not hold that perception because the public opinion is not separated into food and agriculture anything happens with your food like you mentioned food prices we automatically think about agriculture, Ministry of Agriculture, responsibility of farmers, and so on. But they don't impact the shelf. When you go to buy your conkles, your peanuts, and your, you know, your whatever it is, those form part of your food basket, yes, but they come through manufacturing and imports. So yeah. it's two parallel conversations, if you could follow me, which is happening in terms of farmers and agriculture, and then there's a wider food industry. So when the budget time comes around and we say that you know, agriculture is suffering, it nearly contributed nothing to GDP and so on. Okay, because you are using statistics that compares the value of primary commodities traded at the Namdevco markets and so on, those basic foods. And you are not including in that conversation the value of your food and beverage industry, as I just characterized. Mm -hmm. We leave that, we leave that part, that saucy part, to describe non-energy manufacturing to show that that unit or that subsector is booming. You see that difference? That's... So when the Ministry of Trade addresses the conversation, they take all the fame and the prowess for that part of the conversation and they leave us by the roadside, which I think is something we need to recharacterize in order to raise the respect of the men, women, boys and girls that I opened by describing. That is such an interesting perspective. And, and the clinical manner in which you've approached it is, is also interesting that there is a deliberate attempt from what you're saying to skew these statistics when it comes to agriculture and what really constitutes food production and 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 and, and us being able to feed ourselves I mean the the, the, the the math when it comes to the money that's at the lowest end of the rung it could be much higher than what you're talking about obviously um, and it changes if, if you if you accept the information, it changes or it should change your perspective of this thing called agriculture. Um, 
I, I've had the opportunity, as I said, to speak to some people who are involved directly. And farm, there are some farmers, why it has some farmers doing small agriculture and they're catching their tail to sell their produce by the side of the road. You have persons who are engaged in such large-scale, lucrative agriculture in this country that when you get an insight into what they're actually doing, it leaves you speechless with the production, number one, the amount of money that they're making off of this thing, and all of it is more or less done as private enterprise. And, and not with the government's assistance because when you speak to these people, they say they have time to wait on the government to get a little loan to buy a tractor or, or to do this or that or the next or the other. They do it on their own. Um, so with this false perception that we have of the agriculture sector and the impression that, well, the agriculture sector don't help us in no way or the other, now that we have information to suggest otherwise, um, let's take it back to citizen responsibility. Um, and let's let let me allow you to tell people what their responsibility is when it comes to food security. So that's a real good summary there. Save my winding up. <laughs> <laughs> but the so citizen responsibility. So one is of course, well as I keep, I just want to reiterate, which is to respect the circumstances of these people. Because some of us leave home, we sit in traffic, you complain about it, they talk about. Well, how much hours, productive hours, people lose and so on. But, you know, on the opposite side, the devil's advocate will say, well, how much of that time you, go, you come into the office to spend on Facebook? Or, you know <laughs> what I mean, to do non-productive activity throughout the day. And there's all these discussions. Right. But when a farmer hit that hot Sunday, he don't have time to check Facebook and send a tweet or whatever. All right? Mm -hmm. So the respect that I'm mentioning there comes from all angles in terms of honoring people that actually feed you, which is a cultural emblem. That's something you pin to your chest from the day you're born. Somebody feeds you, so to speak, all right? And that has implications. That early, you know, I'm not one of those philosophers, like you said, guru and thing with all these quips. <laughs> but it's just to say that, you know, we train our babies from birth. You know, some people, the working parents and so on. Life is such a way now that you need at least two income streams and, you know, all these lingo that people talk about in the reality of the day and the cost of living and the family structures in terms of accessing housing, you know, a lot of um, tenanted apartments and different living arrangements now as compared to, you know, a few decades ago and so on where you had the benefit of the extended family or the extended family home, and, you know, the concept of the village is shifting so far. But it's only to say that the current modern, quote-unquote, modern lifestyle that we have taught us to use, you know, these breakfast cereals and baby foods and all these manufactured products. And what it says to me is that even from birth, we are training or educating the taste buds of our children to eat things or to appreciate things that doesn't belong to us, which is your wheat-based products, your oats, your peach, your, I don't know, whatever is all the other flavors of these foods. But we don't teach them from early to appreciate breadfruit. I sure you wouldn't buy a bundle of tamaran and care home for your children just like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know what I mean? Just to be crude or naive to the topic is that the actions we take from birth tend to have us appreciate things that doesn't belong to us, which is the imported um, you know, developing that important taste and preference. So by the time you reach into the school system and you try to teach children through the national 4-H clubs and so on, or through any, um, even like the school lunches and so on, where you try to drive and eat local 
um, you know, type of education or understanding to educate taste buds in that direction. People actually feel eating local as a form of punishment because if all their life you get nice peach and whatever other flavors, and somebody bring out um, passion fruit juice and you can't handle the acid because you're accustomed to drinking soda from ever since and so on, you cause a dilemma in children. And you could see the way that some of the food is wasted. Food loss and waste is so real in this country. You, you know, you tend to be shocked because if on one side we're talking about food prices and affordability. And then you look at food loss and waste, which is something still not in the national conversation. It will show you that there's a dichotomy in terms of goals or where the citizens are being guided in appreciating the, you know, the seriousness of the situation. But if I could add one more layer to that, which is when we talk about eat local, you know, it's not a starvation effort of any sort because since 2012, which was our 50th anniversary of independence, together with the Table and Pineapple Farmers Association, National 4-H Clubs, and so on, we've championed an Eat Local Day in this country, which is usually the last week of school. We go celebrate it in schools and with the University of the West Indies in the last few years to carry that type of education. But it is not to say that we demonize imports at the same time. In the earlier conversation we had a few minutes ago, I was showing about this, you know, the value of this food and beverage industry. And of course, you know, when you go to watch your movies in Port of Spain, whatever you buy there, we don't grow none of that on farms. Agreed? If you go into your supermarket, when you walk through that front door, nothing you're looking at there does grow anywhere in this country. In the corner, in the back, they might have a nice green section that, you know, farmers find a place in the air condition on the shelf. But those manufactured food that are all over the food system, those are not grown directly. They're not primary commodities. So... The conversation is not at the same time to demonize imports because people have their different views, but I'd just like to leave one with you and your listeners, which is, let's use ketchup, for example, all right? Well, I don't know the constituents of ketchup right now. Sometimes I tend to doubt if it actually have tomato paste in it <laughs> or coloring. But I'm only saying, to make ketchup, you know, you import the tomato paste from whichever country, and it comes to the port of Port of Spain, agreed? From there, it would go, let's just say, to Diamond Vale Industrial Estate. So, but along the way, you would have been, you know, paying your taxes, whatever fees you pay, you would have been causing to be hired port workers who protested recently, the security, truck drivers, and so on, people in logistics. It would go to Diamond Vale Industrial Estate at a food manufacturing facility to be produced into ketchup as an additive. But at that point, we are paying food scientists or technologists, security, you know, all the people who are there. And again, to leave that facility, you would be paying people in marketing, packaging, and all these other things to create that product. And then you'd pay along the logistics to distribute ketchup, all right? So that food mile is so far, that origin, the origin of that pace, it travel all this way, as I re and I reached the Diamond Vale at the moment, all right? But if you and your family go Mayaro for the weekend, which is on the opposite end of the country on the southeastern seaboard, you can go to any supermarket, by Petal, by whoever, and buy a pack of ketchup, let's just say, for $10. All right? Now, think about all that story I just gave about where that ketchup is traveling. But think about all the people that it caused to be employed along the way, which is, again, in your, well, starting with farmers somewhere in the world, of course. But you're coming down into logistics, uh, well, retail and distribution, food technology, manufacturing, you know, all of it, security, whoever. 
but when we demonize imports and you say cut back, cut out, and you know, people have all these convenient kind of whiplash conversations. What else is there in this economy to employ all those people? If we, I mean, I'm only using ketchup as one example, but there are many more, of course, that you know constitute the manufacturing sector, or food manufacturing specifically. Mm-hmm. So when we say cut off, is a sort of double-edged sword because where are we going to redirect all these people? And they are not just happening by VAPs. Remember, people go to school to learn, you know, human nutrition and dietetics, food sciences, consumer sciences. We're educating them through gate and other funding mechanisms to learn marketing and the social sciences. You know what I mean? So when we just VAPs talk about, you know, demonizing imports, it's not that's something also as a citizen or consumer we need to appreciate that it doesn't also happen like that because it has formed or embedded part of the economy mm-hmm. but what we should be concerned about in imports as citizens is that the continued importation of primary or even primary processed commodities that directly compete with farmers fisher folk and other entrepreneurs on the local food value chain Mm, right, a, because in that, let me just tie it off by saying, sorry, in that it is a heavy. When you talk about the food import bill of six billion TT dollars on average per year, it is the import of intermediary products and concentrates that feed our local manufacturing sector. They are not direct for human consumption, so we can't de- also demonize citizens for saying, well, you know, it's all they importing it, it's all they eating it. No. It is the fraction of that for direct human consumption is what we would have to discuss. Mm, yeah. And and the issues are not necessarily as straightforward as someone may think listening or looking on at what's going uh, what's taking place in the country. Um we, we, we speak a lot about imports versus local and all those kinds of things. But cost is definitely a factor in persons making decisions. Um it's a situation where you can get four apples for $10, but four orange will cost you $20, five mango will cost you $20, twice as much. Don't talk about avocado, zabuka. Uh, that's $30, $40 if you could get one. Um, and But there are some that are imported that sell for $10. Uh, and cassava flour, we tried that. It was too expensive. And has, okay, there, there are countries in the world like, Vietnam and Indonesia and some of these places where the, the diet of the nation hinges heavily on what they produce. Uh, the availability of fast foods and foreign items is not as widely available as we have it here. And those populations are healthier and their food import bill is, is it's minuscule. But that's because these people consume what they produce through, maybe because of circumstances. They didn't have access. They, many of them don't have the ability to buy these foods. And, and because of tradition, they're accustomed to eating what they grow and that kind of thing. Is it a situation where we need to go back there or we need to strike a balance between what exists now and what should be taking place when it comes to what we consume? That's a very powerful observation. What you have observed there from my language is the triumph of foreign franchise capitalism. Mm-hmm. Correct. All right, which is, you know, well, you know what that means, which is we tend to look at, well, we tend to feed off, of, firstly, their manufacturing uh, outputs, and in addition to that, their marketing efforts. 
which has led us to believe over the years that those things are perhaps superior. You know, modern documentary shows us what happens behind the scenes in terms of food manufacturing and the push to get children and different strata of the population to consume certain foods, empty calories and so on. Um, you know, we know at length about the junk snacks, the fast foods and so on. Of course, I'm not the stallion or the beacon of health education in the country. But it's only to say that we have lost that battle to some extent to foreign franchise capitalism. And but I all hope, all hope, sorry, is not lost. Drawing on the example you gave, or I could also add my own experience in China. I had an invitation, two invitations, just before the pandemic by the government of China to explore one, which was in the first instance at Beijing Agriculture University. It was there. Uh, policy planning and development history in agriculture and rural development. And in 2019, July, I was invited again at a follow-up uh, series of you know, sort of investigations, visiting at manufacturing companies and so on, and farmers to look at um, food safety systems in terms of agricultural commodities and farm products. And in those two exposures, of course, being a person that I am, to also look around the food system that is there. Because, you know, we talk about, or we tend to loosely talk about fake foods and all these type of things emanating from that market. And again, it is driven by Western media, the access, our access to that, and not really understanding what is there on the ground in China. We don't access that type of news or that type of information directly. And what I have found is that, just as you are saying here, when you go to the villages, like you go to Sangang village where we went, and there I understood that China is in fact the largest producer of almond nuts in the world. But if you check the statistics, they really kind of export none, simply because all of it is consumed locally. All right? But they are the largest producer in the world in volume. And, yeah. and of course, I wouldn't remember the statistics off my cuff right now. But it's only to say that even in those rural villages, when you go, mm -hmm. the restaurants there are not the franchisees that we see on every junction in this country or every water stop on the highway. It is, you know, restaurants built on what is offered in that geographic area. So in Sangang village, which is a mountainous area, mm -hmm. you wouldn't expect to find, you know, shrimp or lobster or something of that nature. But you would find, uh, you know, food and tree crops and so on, meals prepared out of what exists, just as you are suggesting there. And I think we have that same cultural influence. You see, eating doubles on the oil belt, <laughs> David, mm -hmm. or, you know, we tend to associate, we call it territorial marketing now in the fancy words, which is when you hear maracas, bacon shark, you may be a vegetarian, I believe, bacon shark whistling somewhere in the back of your head. So you tend to associate places with foods and i think we probably need in terms of local tourism or lo driving local economic development and you know you may or may not know that even in the regional corporations there are led officers you know persons who supposedly supposed to be looking after driving that type of economic activity mm -hmm. i think we should pay a bit more focus on them or maybe resource them better to take us back to that territorial marketing that gives places an affinity or you know give in the minds of public uh or public opinion that they should go there to experience certain foods you know bring back that loyalty to the land and even though you know through the role of education and so on in 2017 i should say that 
we attracted Sesame Street to Trent Tobago. I'm not sure how many people even know that. Mm-hmm. And we carried them into Tableland in George Village in the back there to experience what is known as the Tableland Pineapple, or the Sugarloaf Pineapple. And the beauty about that is the producers of Sesame Street found us on social media, always peddling, we always talking about, you know, the issues. They're very easy to talk about the issues, as you know, involving agriculture. But they also saw, you know, photos and experiences of us being in schools, being involved, um, you know, at different levels of education with the 4-H clubs and so on. And they reached out to us. But it's only to say that their purpose was to educate their audience, which is, you know, over, over 500 million people around the world, in terms of, again, where their food comes from, how it is produced, mm-hmm. and to respect those producers. And the message of that um, segment, which is available on YouTube and so on, you could use the keywords of pineapple, Trinidad, Sesame Street, or whatever to find it. The key message was educating urban children or youths that pineapples came from these the, the hard work of these farmers. They didn't come on the shelf in the supermarket yeah, in the okay. urban area and yeah. so on. So internally, when we talk about driving domestic tourism and rural economic development and so on, these are also dimensions aside from the, you know, the carnival festivals and all of that whiplash that we suffer. There are other more sustainable things that we could be investing to. And again, it is linked to food and agriculture. Well, a pet peeve of mine is the lack of interest that we show in domestic tourism. You have some people who live their entire lives and have not visited some of the gems that exist in Trinidad and Tobago. There are some people who live their whole life in Trinidad and never went across to, the, to Tobago and vice versa. I know that for a fact. When it comes to, to our culinary tourism, we have a wealth that, at, that outsiders just looking for. Some of them just don't know it's available. What we have now is a groundswell where you have individuals engaging in these tours and carrying people from a Sunday to a drive down Mayaro or wherever else to, to, to buy fish at the roasting and take them up to Toko. But, but as, a, as, as a country, we, we don't see that as important. I, we've never seen it as important, and you've highlighted it. We, we continue to focus on one element of our culture, only thinking that's what people want. We need to take a couple messages, though. When we get back, probably take a couple calls. There are people who want to get involved in the conversation, put across a point, ask a question. Feel free to do so. Our special guest this morning, we are speaking to Dr. Omarad Maharaj. Uh, we started off by speaking about uh, the Brinsley Samaru um, lecture that's going to take place on Saturday at the NCIC, the Bisram Gopi Auditorium in Shagwanas. The, the, the discussion has moved on to food prices and, and food security and everything else. So when we get back after these messages, we'll continue our conversation. Take some of your calls. Stay with us. The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all-new Talk Radio Freedom 106.5. Welcome back, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we do have with us, uh, speaking about food security, secure citizens' responsibility, Dr. Omidat Maharaj. But unfortunately, uh, our time with him is up because he does have... Um, prior commitments, uh, Dr. Maharaj, nice to have you with us. Uh, as you know, we've been trying, I've been trying to get you on the program for a long time to discuss many of these things, and we've just scratched the surface in this discussion that we had on some of the things that we need to be discussing. Uh, let's, as, as we end our conversation this morning, let me allow you to, to give people some advice on if people are finding themselves with challenges when it comes to their food and, and, and feeding themselves. One suggestion made in the program some time ago is people should grow things so that they have one less thing to buy. What's, what, what would be some of your advice to our listeners? 
Well, <clears throat> Satish, before the time runs out, I just want to, of course, start the closing by saying thanks for this forum and this opportunity to keep the national conversation alive, not only in our own interest, because we hope to eat at least three times per day and provide same for families and children. But through this conversation, we are actually championing the livelihoods of thousands of people out there who may not have the access to an audience to be heard about these same issues. So yes, at every forum, you might find that farmers tend to be passionate about problems and constraints that they have. We really need to find opportunities, just as you are suggesting. And those opportunities come from first appreciating and accepting the situation about food security in this country and perhaps those that exist in the CARICOM space and to appreciate the responsibilities as we open the discussion by saying, so we cannot lament about other parties, whether it's government, manufacturing, importers, whoever it is. We cannot lament about their shortcomings when, again, we, in fact, as citizens, are not holding our end of the responsibility. And that responsibility is comes in different ways. It, first of all, comes from being the discerning consumer. So some people tend to buy illicit or contraband foods. The Minister of Agriculture had a statement recently about that trade happening between Venezuela and perhaps other places in terms of, you know, unregulated food imports. It wouldn't really be imports, but unregulated food coming into the food system unchecked. And, you know, there are other conversations about the failure of border control and so on. But the point is, if you bring a carcass, goat or whatever it is from Venezuela, it's slaughtered and sold in the market. The consumer doesn't know. All right? If I go in the market and, you know, I feel into goat this Sunday, I buy some. I wouldn't know if that die on a boat and they chop it up and they sell it in Chironas. I have no way of knowing that. And that is how dangerous the food system is in this country without quality assurance, without a food drug testing lab, routine checks on the municipal markets, the enforcement of farmer badges, for example, or even when you're selling food, the simple food badge that gives the consumer the indication that there's regulation and checks about where our food comes from or where it came from. And that's the only way we could validate origin. So citizens should, of course, put pressure in demanding that type of quality assurance in the food system. So one, you wouldn't be buying contraband, and by extension, we wouldn't buy, be buying things that are stolen in Valencia, in Arima, in Wallafield, where there's crop and livestock or whatever it is but sold in Shogunas and San Fernando and so on. And the prices in that type of trade is, of course, relatively cheaper because people want to get rid of it. They are not farmers. They are not processors. They do not have, you know, storage or equipment or whether it be a small abattoir or anything like that. So they want to sell these things very quickly because it rots. And we as consumers are guilty because we like piper price. When things cheap, you want to buy and sell your family and then go down by the flyover. I'd have a man selling orange 100 for 20. You know, things like that. But we don't stop for a minute to appreciate that is the blood, sweat, and tears of an actual farmer. You mm. know, this man just thing. So in terms of citizen responsibility, we want to be more mindful about that food system, number one. We want to enforce the role of education. Education doesn't mean coming to the university alone. At the UE, we have so many programs in food and agriculture, whether it's human nutrition, dietetics, agribusiness, geography, you name it, the, they have that type of education, agreed? But there are also other forms of education. For example, I made a major point in my mind when we went into this COVID-19 experience, which is that the children who belong to 4-H clubs in their respective schools around this country, in Trinidad and Tobago, 
had an advantage and we did not use that opportunity to bolster them or bolster their roles because they could have, while the place was on lockdown, taught their own families how to grow a little okra, how to set tomato, how to do whatever. You understand? But we did not. All the noise we were making in that time about losing the rights to buy chicken and chips and whatever people were thinking about, we did not redirect resources through that national forage system to support those members who would have today, of course, been pillars of success. And mm. coming out of the COVID experience, neither did we celebrate entities like the Forage Club who actually carried informal agricultural extension support. People were all over social media, you know, asking for how to grow this, they're doing this. And it became such a buzz during that time. And as soon as we opened back up Christmas, when it was at 2021 to do shopping for Christmas, everybody forget about home garden. Mm -hmm. So the role of education, it has a cultural undertone to it, but definitely we need to refocus the priorities. And that priority is on, not as I, well, the first point was, of course, where the food comes from, respecting that origin. The second point now is about education and how you access that form of empowerment to feed yourself. And then we link it to what you just said about growing things at home or in the spaces that you have. And we know that there are challenges. We know there's a giant African snail. We know there are two-foot pests. There are all kind <laughs> of pests inside of there. And, you know, all of those things are bound, but that should not prevent you Mm-hmm. from living life, as they say, life needs to go on. And that education, if we're going to tie up that point, is happening also from public education and awareness, which is like the same Eat Local Day, you know, the same things that attracted Sesame Street, National Fruit Festival, all these types of agricultural activities. We should push our citizens for more of that, where we could access information, make connections, knowing farmers, getting to know people personally, learning how to grow learning about different production systems and so on. So, yes, I did say that, you know, the structure of life now has moved, has moved sorry, a lot more into tenanted apartments, shared living arrangements, townhouses, you know, things that really didn't exist a few decades ago. But there are still things that we can do for ourselves, just as you said, to knock meals off the plate. Yeah. And finally, and finally, what I should say is to be a more mindful consumer. We work hard for our money, yes. But if you look at minimum wage, all right, if you look at minimum wage and the value that pays you per day, and you see the price of a three-piece meal now, a three-piece of fried chicken. So it means, therefore, that if I work whole day for minimum wage, and at the end of it, I'm so tired, and I have my little family of four or five, and I want to buy a meal to take them home, I probably need to work two days in order to afford one family meal. And that is a frightening situation that we need to reverse in this country. Thank you very much. Yeah, I want to thank you for being with us. I'm sure that we will have further conversations because, as I said, we only scratched the surface on this thing. Thank you for being with us here this morning. The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all-new Talk Radio, Freedom 106.5.